0: Our scripture text this evening is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, continuing to look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. Hear God's word, verses 1 through 14. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come, that no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned, who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's been a lot of speculation over the years as to the identity of the Antichrist this individual that Paul refers to as the man of lawlessness and the son of destruction some have said that various roman emperors were the antichrist and nero is one particular emperor that has often been pinpointed and it's not difficult to speculate why he was a very evil man who murdered many christians He was the first Roman emperor to persecute Christians systematically, and it was under his rule that, in fact, Peter and Paul were martyred, Peter by being crucified upside down and Paul by beheading. Uh, Nero entertained guests in his uh, garden at night under the light of Christians who were being used as human candles. But actually, the persecution inflicted against the church by some of the later emperors was worse. It was the emperor Marcus Aurelius who had Christians thrown to wild beasts before the audiences of the amphitheater. Some years later, the emperor Decius ordered an empire-wide effort uh, to eradicate the church. The emperors Valerian, Diocletian, and Galerius all left their own marks against the church. And uh, these later persecutions are said by historians to be the worst of all. And you can begin to see how there are many Roman emperors who can rightly be called antichrists because of their opposition to Christ and the church. Throughout history, there have been many other men also associated with the kingdoms of this world who were instruments of the devil against Christ and against his kingdom and church. But these were not the antichrist, the antichrist, uh, to use the, the definite article, the, these men were not the, the Antichrist as we find him described in 2 Thessalonians. Around the time of the Reformation, it became a common thing for the Reformers to view the Popes of, the, Ro- of uh, the Roman Church as Antichrists. And in some cases for a Reformer to call the particular Pope of his day the Antichrist. And uh, you'll find references To this way of thinking among various writers and teachers in our protestant circles and i would even direct your attention to the westminster confession of faith itself in its original form it says in chapter 25 of the church section six there is no other head of the church but the lord jesus christ nor can the pope of rome in any sense be the head thereof but is that antichrist, that man of sin and son of perdition that exalteth himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God. By the way, this confirms that our fathers understood the man of sin, this man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 to be the antichrist, even though we find that scripture doesn't use that language specifically, Uh, for this individual in our text. Again, the word Antichrist is used by the Apostle John. But what we want to think about right now is the original language of the Westminster Confession of Faith, that the Pope was the Antichrist. If you were to look at the Westminster Confession of Faith, as it is found in our Trinity Hymnal, you will see that the form of the Confession that the OPC, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, has adopted, has left out this reference to the Pope as being the Antichrist. And uh, this is probably best in order to avoid confusion. For when the original form of the confession speaks of the Pope of Rome as that Antichrist, and that man of sin, it seems to be saying the Pope of Rome is that very Antichrist of which our passage forewarns by speaking of the Pope of Rome in the singular, it at least gives the impression that a particular Pope of Rome was in view when our fathers wrote our confession. In defense of the original form, the confession doesn't actually say any particular Pope is the Antichrist. It does refer to the Pope of Rome, but no name is given. The word Pope is capitalized, which probably indicates our fathers were thinking of the papacy, or what we might call the papal system. Probably what they were simply trying to say was that every pope of Rome is a manifestation of the spirit of the coming Antichrist, and that in the papacy, the forces of evil are working to bring about the fulfillment of the Antichrist. But there are a lot of maybes and a lot of probabilities in all of this. There are unanswered questions about what our forefathers meant did our forefathers mistakenly think that a particular pope of Rome of their day was the Antichrist? Or did our forefathers think that the Antichrist is more of an idea and a system of evil at work in the world rather than a person? In other words, were they associating the Antichrist with the papal system and rejecting the idea that he would be a particular person who would manifest himself right before Christ's coming? And, and I would bring to your attention that there are some Uh, within the OPC, and also other Reformed people outside of the OPC who deny that the Antichrist will be a personal individual. Some say that the term Antichrist refers to the spirit of opposition and rebellion that has always manifested itself against Christ whenever the church is persecuted, whether from religious or political circles. Some see the Antichrist in the papacy. Others see the Antichrist in ungodly government others in the apostasy developing within Protestant churches. In a sense, all of them are correct, and yet we cannot escape how our passage clearly speaks of the Antichrist as a particular person arising in history just before the coming of the Lord. And indeed, part of what the Lord does in his coming is to destroy him, which means then that no particular pope has been the Antichrist because we have not witnessed Christ returning to destroy him, as verse 8 tells us, will happen. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. In my mind, the original form of our confession leaves too many unanswered questions about what our forefathers meant, which is why I side with those who revised the confession so as to leave out that part about the Pope of Rome being that Antichrist, that man of sin and son of perdition, that exalteth himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God. They left that out um, in the new form. At the same time, I think we can recognize that our forefathers were at least on the right track. The Church of Rome, with its popes, is certainly an Antichristian system. It is correct to speak of the popes of Rome as Antichrists as long as we recognize that there is a man who is coming, who is going to be worthy of the name Antichrist with a capital A. And you might be thinking this evening that calling the popes of Rome Antichrist is perhaps harsh or uncalled for, but you have to recall that they say that the popes of Rome are the vicars of Christ. And you can look that up in the dictionary, what a vicar is, but that means that the popes are considered to be Christ himself on earth. So it's very much an anti-Christian, anti-Christ kind of a way of thinking. I remind you of 1 John 2.18, where it says, Little children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the anti-Christ is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. It is possible, and in my mind, even likely that the papacy and the Church of Rome will play major roles in the coming anti-Christian kingdom, which is probably what our forefathers also saw. For The papacy does fit in a striking way with what scripture tells us about the coming anti-Christian kingdom over which the Antichrist will be head. In other words, I believe there are good reasons to, to think that the coming Antichrist might be a pope. And I say this because Scripture's descriptions of the Antichrist indicate to us that he will be a person of both political and religious influence. And it's a fact that the Roman Catholic Church does not believe in a separation of church and state. They believe that the Pope of Rome, who is to them the head of the church, should also be the political head of the world. They are very open about that. And Scripture, particularly passages in Daniel and Revelation, associate the Antichrist, first of all, with the political kingdoms of this world, especially highlighting Rome as a solid example of what an anti-Christian kingdom is like. Daniel refers to a number of kingdoms of this world that were all anti-Christian. Revelation 13 and the Beast of the Sea bring together the symbolism of all of these nations, which is the Holy Spirit's way, I believe, of telling us that there have been and will continue to be up until Christ returns, earthly nations that continue to be instruments of Satan against the church. Draw your attention to the anti-Christian nature of this beast as described by John in his vision of Revelation 13. Verse 2 of that chapter tells us that it is the dragon or the devil who gives this beast its power, its throne, and great authority. Verse 3 tells us that in John's vision, the whole earth marveled and followed the beast. And notice there is this religious aspect that goes hand in hand with anti-Christian government. Verse 4 tells us that Satan's goal is worship of himself through worship of this beast. And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast, and who can fight against it. Verses 5 through 8 bring out even more the anti-Christian nature of this kingdom from a religious point of view. We're speaking of this beast, John writes, and the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven, Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. We can see how the beast of the sea suddenly sounds more like a person than a symbol of corrupt government. Uh, This corresponds to how you can't really clearly distinguish persecuting nations from their leaders. This is why we don't equate, I don't believe we should equate the beast of the sea with the Antichrist. Some do that. They say this beast of the sea is the Antichrist. I don't think that's correct. While at the same time, we can recognize this beast is a symbol of Satan's anti-Christian work that involves both anti-Christian government and its leaders. Again, let it be noted that Satan's attacks against the church will not only involve nations and governments, but also religion with various philosophies and ideologies and beliefs that provide the lies that promote his influence in the world. Satan's goal is that corrupt governments and their leaders would be worshipped as though God and whenever we see people clamoring to a particular government or government leader to provide them with a life of fulfillment and satisfaction and security, you can be sure the spirit of Antichrist is at work. It's the religious aspect of the Antichrist that is particularly emphasized here in 2 Thessalonians 2. Revelation 13, 2 Thessalonians 2 say virtually the same thing of the Antichrist. Verse 4 of our text says of the man of lawlessness, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes a seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God, which corresponds with John's vision of the beast of the sea being worshipped. We haven't even considered yet the second half of Revelation 13, where John describes seeing in his vision another beast, the beast from the earth. Later in Revelation 16 and in 19, this beast is called the false prophet. And uh, Revelation 13 describes this second beast as intimately related to the first. He helps the first beast. He is the power behind the first beast. And hasn't it often been the case that false prophets and false religions have served the cause of corrupt governments against the church? Isn't it always part of Satan's attack against the church to not only use earthly nations and their leaders to physically persecute the church, but also to use lies to promote ungodly government and to rot the church from within by pushing worldly philosophies and false doctrine? Revelation 13 verses 12 and following says of this false prophet, it exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence And makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. It was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Notice the parallel to that in 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 and 10. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. So if we bring together what Revelation 13 and 2 Thessalonians 2 teach us about the Antichrist and his kingdom, it is this, that just as Satan's anti-Christian attacks involve politics and religion, the coming Antichrist will be both a political and religious figure. He will be in charge of the world's politics and the world's religions. He will be worshipped by the majority of this world as though he is the divine Christ himself. And when we see the two beasts of revelation coming together in a nation that persecutes believers, and there's a leader who is in, takes on an idolatrous role as man's savior, we have an antichrist. When we have the two beasts coming together in their fullest and final manifestation, we have the antichrist. And what Revelation describes in terms of the beast of the earth, this false prophet helping and promoting the beast of the sea is supported by what Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians about the Antichrist as being the man of lawlessness and his coming in connection with what Paul calls the rebellion. Notice how verse 3 associates the rebellion with the revealing of the man of lawlessness. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of destruction. So what is meant by this rebellion? And uh, what this expression refers to is a period of great apostasy in the Christian church which then might prompt you to ask, well, what is apostasy? Well, apostasy is when people in the visible church of Christ fall away. They they begin to deny the truth that they once professed, and they depart from Christ and his church and live in rebellion. Apostasy is taking place on a large scale when an entire church, or even on a larger scale, when an entire denomination that bears the name of Christ starts becoming a false church. And a church is said to have become apostate when it has actually become a false church and casts off any profession, any true profession of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says in Matthew 24, 11 of the last days, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And we can see such evidences of apostasy in the church world today. It seems to, to be only growing Uh, Such churches no longer believe in the authority of God's word. They say that the word of God has errors in it, and yet they talk about Jesus Christ, but the people and even leaders of these churches don't seem to understand and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, of the need for salvation from sin through the atoning death of Christ on the cross. If you study what they teach and believe They don't say that we are saved through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. And to many, the cross of Christ is not about Jesus dying for sinners to take the punishment we deserve, but the cross has been made into something else altogether. The cross is held out as a symbol of a man dying for what he believed in, or the cross is held up before God's people as a way of telling us how valuable and great we are that Christ would die for us, so that the cross becomes a tool of self esteem. To Christ are added religious ceremonies and good works of all different kinds as merits toward salvation. But any time something is added to Christ and is made even part of the way of salvation, a different gospel has been created, a false gospel. And we see in such churches a departure in every way from the truths of God's word. We see a minimizing of man's sin and rarely even talking about sin, which is why lawlessness is always connected with apostasy. And it's not surprising that that would happen when even worship services become selfishly all about what man can get from God rather than the worship and exaltation of the God of grace that so-called sermons are not expositions of the word of God, but they are speeches, they are homilies meant to inspire and entertain. And we see apostasy taking place in churches that decide to ordain women to leadership roles against the clear instruction of God's word. We see it in churches accepting homosexuality as a legitimate lifestyle. The signs of apostasy are all around us. And of course, We have to be on guard ourselves against it, and we must remind ourselves that the church cannot stand if we lose sight of the gospel of grace and if we lose sight of the authority of God's word. Even the slightest departures from God's word are evidence of a lack of love for the truth and our movements in a dangerous direction. And so we see all around us churches that say they are churches of Jesus Christ, but have lost their first love for Christ and his word. you see, it will be members of such churches who will be ready and willing to accept the religious leadership of the Antichrist. In some, as we think about the relationship between the Antichrist and this rebellion, the man of lawlessness will arise out of the apostasy, but the apostasy will also be intensified by his coming. The two are intimately connected. And what he will do to inspire people to submit to him and ultimately to worship him is to impress them with his power as it's displayed in these false signs and wonders. The Antichrist, combining in himself the roles of both beasts, will perform miraculous signs that will convince many that he is God, He will do mighty things through the power of Satan. The signs that he performs will have the purpose of validating his claims as the world's savior and of drawing people's attention to him. And these signs are called wonders or marvels from the perspective of those who witness them. For what the Antichrist does will amaze and will awe the masses. And when our text speaks of false signs and wonders, this does not mean that these will be tricks. This does not mean they will be optical illusions. They will be wonders that no human being can normally perform. And they will serve as signs pointing to the Antichrist as having the power to be the savior of the world. But they will be false signs and wonders because, of course, the Antichrist is taking, trying to take the place of the true Christ, Jesus. His power will be but the power of Satan used for purposes of deception. And from what scripture here says, these signs will have a powerful effect upon people. And what scares me is how the Christian church is is through its teachings opening up people to believing such false lying wonders as actually being from God. As apostasy grows in the church, as people depart from God's word, what becomes their new authority well, isn't it their feelings? Isn't it experience? These are the new authorities. And people say about various things, I know that what I believe is true because of the experience that I've had. For instance, people will say, I know that it's right for women to be pastors because they feel called. And because I've heard them preach and I was edified by their preaching. Another says, I know speaking in tongues is real because I've witnessed it taking place or or I've even done it. Or I know some homosexuals and they're nice people so I know that God would never condemn them to hell. Or I know that I'm going to a good church because I always leave the services with a good feeling. Or I know that what I am believing is right because my life is going so well. And if you begin to evaluate your life and your beliefs apart from the objective teachings of God's word, you're going to Open yourself up to all kinds of subjective influences. And when the Antichrist one day comes and performs these signs and wonders, many so-called Christians are going to say, well, his power is of God. Only God could do what he does. Therefore, he is worthy of my trust and worship. And professing Christians will flock to his side. People of God, you must believe the truth of God's word and you must submit all of your life and all of your beliefs to God's authority. You must never believe in something because you feel like it's the right thing. You must believe what you believe because you know it is the right thing because it is taught clearly in God's word. In closing this evening, I would draw your attention to the fact that as strong and as influential as the Antichrist will be, he's not going to be able to deceive God's elect. Christ uh, tells us in Matthew 24, verse 24, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. And the point is that it will not be possible for the elect to be led astray by these antichrists. In the end, God will preserve his people. You can be sure that his true church will not be lost. To Satan's deceptions. In fact, the reason that Christ has given us these words and has revealed these things to us is so that we will recognize the Antichrist to be what he is and will not give in to his deceptions. This is part of Christ preserving his people. He preserves us by the power of his Holy Spirit, by the revelation of the truth. And what our passage teaches us is not the failure of the church, it's not the failure of Christ's kingdom. What our passage teaches us is that even though Satan will make attempts at at destroying the church and will one day make a final powerful assault against the church, yet Christ will return and he will destroy the Antichrist and his kingdom. And notice as part of the comfort of this passage that it will not be difficult for Christ to do this. God's word tells us that the Lord will kill the Antichrist with the breath of his mouth and bring him to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Christ tells you and me about these things so that we will not be surprised, so that we will not be disheartened when these things take place. What must be understood without any shadow of a doubt is that Christ will have the victory. I believe, in fact, that's we want to understand the book of Revelation as a whole. The idea is that there are going to be All of these very difficult things that are taking place in this world that make it look like the church is failing, that the church may even be destroyed, but Christ is on the throne. And all of this has been planned by God, and Christ will have the victory. There on the cross of Calvary, Christ pronounced, it is finished. For there on the cross, he has done everything that was needed to earn victory for himself, and for his bride, the church. And, and Christ accomplished a salvation that the devil is not going to be able to thwart. Things may look bad for a time, but the Lord doesn't want you to base what you believe on how things appear. And that's the perspective of revelation. The Lord is showing the apostle John, this is what's going on behind the scenes. He takes John into the throne room of God where Christ is seated, where he is reigning. He wants us to understand That there are things going on beyond what we can see with our physical eyes. There's a physical world, yes, but there's also the spiritual world. And Christ is king. And he wants you to look beyond these attacks of Satan to at least in your mind, see Christ seated on the throne, to know that he is there, and to believe that he is coming again and he will put an end one day to all of this opposition. Amen. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and his victory, for what he accomplished on the cross that we might be saved from our sins, that we might be delivered from the domain of darkness, that we might be delivered from Satan to whom we were slaves. Father, we thank you that even though Satan still attempts to destroy your church, we know that he still hates you and still Wants to do everything he can uh, to hurt you by hurting us. Father, we thank you that despite all of that, you are the sovereign Lord of all. We thank you that even all of this persecution is part of your plan, even though we may not always understand why. Um, Yet, Father, we recognize that this is what you have for us. And uh, we thank you for the knowledge that one day all of this opposition will be brought to an end by our Savior at his coming. And now we pray, Lord, that we will be ever mindful of uh, the Lord's coming, that that will have an effect upon us to encourage us, to give us hope, uh, to uh, give us a right perspective on our lives here on earth. For, Father, this earth and the life here is, is not uh, what life is all about. Um, eternal life is knowing you. It is being with you. It is that heavenly life that we look forward to. And so we pray, Lord, that your son, the Lord Jesus, will come quickly and uh, will bring about the completion um, of his uh, work of salvation. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.